Hi, everyone. I'm Professor Kane. I'm the publisher of Universe Today. I've been a space and astronomy journalist for over 20 years. We do a lot of news. I do a lot of interviews. And this is the question show where you've got a whole pile of questions about space and astronomy. And these are my answers. We record this show live every Monday at 5pm Pacific time. So if you want, you can join the show live here on the YouTube channel and ask your questions and follow up questions and chat with other people that are watching the show. But also, if you put your question anywhere across my channel in any of the videos, I see them all I see everything I gather a bunch of them up and I answer them here. As always, as I answer the questions, there's going to be a code showing up some kind of Star Wars related planetary code on the screen. And just watch the episode and then vote for the question that you thought was the best just type in the name of the planet. And we will add them all up. And we'll tell you who gave the best question in an upcoming show. So last week, we had three questions tie for first place. So Brian wanted to know if any elements are being formed in quasars. The Homo de Occidento wanted to know if a society would send out von Neumann probes. And Cyberpunk asked, shouldn't the rest of the world have some kind of say about whether we should be sending messages out to aliens. So congratulations to all three of you for asking uh, really good questions that the community really liked. I, 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 don't know, I hope we won't end up having three way ties from here on out. But uh, so that's why you got to vote. So go ahead. And as you're watching this video, you know, after you've had a chance to really consider all of the questions, all of the answers, go ahead and type in the code that you like. And as I mentioned, we are having a race between SpaceX, NASA and Universe Today. What's going to happen first? Will Starship launch? Will the SLS launch? Or will Universe Today's Patreon reach 1000 patrons? You can help only one of those. And so you really should play your part in helping us beat Elon Musk and NASA to their goals. Now, of course, this isn't just for me, right? Universe Today is a pretty big team at this time. We've got Anton, we've got Chad, we've got all of the writers on Universe Today, over a dozen people. And the funding that you provide, the patronage that you provide to us helps us pay the salaries of all of the people who create all of the content, both here on YouTube, the podcast, and on the website. Becoming a patron gives you a lot of benefits. You get no ads on Universe Today for life. Even if you stop becoming a patron, we will remove all the ads for you. You get no ads on our videos. And becoming a patron allows us to create like the minimal advertising here on YouTube for the rest of the audience. If you notice, you can watch our entire hour long interviews, our 30 plus minute question shows, and there's like the bare minimum advertising that's required by YouTube to stop them from putting lots of ads in it. So join our Patreon, go to patreon.com slash universe today, support us, help us beat SpaceX and NASA to space, help us reach a 1000 patrons. And if you do, uh, one of the wish lists that the patrons have wanted, which is that we're going to do a book club, will move ahead on that we haven't figured out exactly how this is going to work. But I'm sure you'll love what we come up with. All right, let's get into the questions. Mac. Hey, Fraser, why do we never see moving images, real time video of objects in the universe, like the swirling around a black hole or pulsars pulsating twin neutron stars circling each other and so on? Will JWST be able to do this? There's a bunch of answers to this question. Like in some cases, it's because 
the object that you're looking at is too large and moving too slowly. And so, for example, if you were looking at, say, a supermassive black hole that was slowly rotating, and if it's, say, many million times the mass of the sun, it's going to take a very long period of time for things to change dynamically over time. But a lot of it is just that what astronomers see in their telescopes is not what the artist's impression is telling you. Like in the artist's impression, you're seeing these incredible swirling black holes with jets that are pouring out of them and accretion disks. But what astronomers see is one dot of light. And from that one single dot of light, and they are able to measure the brightness of that light, they're able to tell how what the what is what material is circulating around the black hole, how the brightness is changing when it's feeding and so on. There's another classic example, there's a kind of star called the mirror variable. And these mirror variables are are sort of will pulsate and grow in size significantly over a very short period of time going from relatively small, say around the size of a normal star, and they'll puff out beyond say the orbit of Earth, and then they'll shrink back down. And they'll do this again on a very regular schedule. And if you could actually see that, it would be amazing. But again, what astronomers can see is one pixel of light in their sensor that changes in brightness over a very set schedule. You can have eclipsing binaries, you have two stars orbiting around each other sharing material, it would be just incredible to see up close. And again, what do you see, you see what looks like one dot that changes in brightness on a very set schedule. So the problem is really that there just aren't a lot of objects that we have the kind of resolution that you could see changes happening for the stuff that we can see when you think about how we can see the rotation of Jupiter, or how we can see the transit of Jupiter's moons across the planet, like these are things that we can record and actually see their movements. But there have been a couple of things, astronomy related, which have changed over time and astronomers have been able to track them. One is there's a very famous star called V838 Mon. And the Hubble Space Telescope has been tracking this, the kind of this nebula that's surrounding the star for almost its entire time in orbit. And it you can see what is this explosion blasting away from the star over multiple frames, but each frame is several years later, and the astronomers come back, they take another picture and they show it. Um, you can see the the cloud of material expanding from the site of supernova 1987 a the closest supernova that we saw in the sky. We're now well over 30 years since this thing happened. And you can see how the light is changing as this supernova is expanding. We've seen some exoplanetary systems where where you can actually see the planets moving around in orbit around the star. So just as our techniques get better, as our telescopes get better, we're going to be able to see more and more targets and actually see them dynamically change in ways that I guess your imagination is, is hoping to see. So will James Webb be able to help? Absolutely. It's going to be able to see things that were before just blurry blobs and actually bring in resolution. And if it comes back and looks at them every couple of years, we'll start to see things change over time. Jurislavic. Why do we hear that the Voyagers left the solar system if they're not even close to the Oort cloud? They've crossed the heliosphere. So does that mean the Oort cloud sits on interstellar space? Thanks. Where does the solar system end? 
That is a complicated question. And it really just depends on how you want to define it. The sun is giving off a stream of particles, the solar wind, and where the solar wind ends is where the particles given off by all the other stars are buffeting against it and where the solar wind is no longer the dominant wind that is pushing out in this area. And that's the heliosphere. And so you could say, well, is that the end of the solar system? And then yeah, the Voyager spacecraft, they're now beyond the heliosphere. So they are now in interstellar space in that they are now being buffeted mainly by the collective solar winds from all the other stars in the Milky Way. And they're not primarily being hit by the solar wind from the sun. But the gravity of the sun still reaches out quite far away. As you said, the Oort cloud is like 50,000 astronomical units is about two light years potentially away from the sun is the extent of the Oort cloud. And so when you think about the Oort cloud around the sun, and the potential Oort cloud around Alpha Centauri, even though we're four light years away from each other, our Oort clouds are getting closer and closer to actually interacting overlapping. Is that the end of the solar system? So the definition of like, what is the end of the solar system just sort of depends on what you need it for? Is it is it the heliosphere? Is it where the solar wind ends? Is it where the last planet is that we know of? Is it where the Oort cloud is where the comets are coming from? Uh, there are many different ends of the solar system and the voyagers will pass each one of them in time. Kathleen Matson. Hey, Fraser, I know there are many different sources of information for the work that you do and you're constantly taking notes. I too am a rabid note taker. And so I'm interested to learn what tool you use for keeping and organizing your notes. I'm actually not a rabid note taker. I don't like taking notes. I find that when I take notes, I don't do anything with them. I they just pile up and I never go back and look at them. So I'll be working on a specific project, say I'm writing a script or I'm writing an article and I will be gathering the material that I need and and bring it all together in the document that I'm working on. But once the document is over, I will. It's all gone. I don't sort of think about it anymore. But the thing that I do do is I said do do. But the thing that I do is that I try to keep as much information into my working memory as I humanly can. And so I use a piece of software called Anki, which is a spaced repetition system. And so what I do is if I find pieces of information, either like I had to on the fly, answer some question like the size of the heliosphere, and I didn't know it, then when I review my videos, I will search out the answers to these questions, and I'll put it into my spaced repetition system, so that in the future, I will always have that information at the drop of a hat. And I really feel like it's important for me to provide specific information. Like I should know the escape velocity of the moon 2.38 meters kilometers per second, I should know the distance to Andromeda, the you know, like all of these facts, because they come up again and again and again. And so Anki is a way for me to keep that information in my brain. And when I'm really organized about it, I'm adding 2030 cards a day to Anki, I'm reviewing them for 20 minutes in the morning, and keeping a lot of this information about space in my working memory. And it feels to me like it's a game changer in being able to, then when I write stuff, 
I don't have to sit and research and think about it. It's just there in my head and I just write it right away. So I don't do notes, but I do like to use a spaced repetition system. Sunny Vegas. Is there any opportunity to make better rocket fuel? I know there is nuclear fusion rockets and ions, but they don't have as much thrust. Is there anything left to innovate rocket fuel to get people into space? Now you discounted nuclear rockets or fusion rockets, I guess, because nuclear fusion rockets don't exist yet. But a nuclear fission rocket has been tested for many years, and they work great, and they provide a ton of thrust. So if NASA and other agencies were willing to take the risk of having a nuclear reactor blast out propellant from the surface of the Earth, you could get a better rocket system to carry stuff into space. But there are risks. And so it seems like the way to do that is going to be to launch your reactor into space first, then fire it up and use it as an upper stage for your for your system. But beyond a nuclear fission rocket, there's really isn't much that beats a chemical rocket with our current level of technology. Chemical rockets are a very understood technology. They are, I wouldn't say they're safe. But we know how to work with liquid fuels for a variety from cars to airplanes and so on. They provide enough thrust to be able to carry payloads into orbit. The big missing key was for anyone to develop a fully reusable rocket that you didn't have to throw the rocket away every time you used it. And that has never existed before. I mean, now we have the Falcon 9, the booster stage of the Falcon 9. We're about we hope to see a fully two stage reusable rocket go with Starship. And when that happens, you don't really need a different kind of fuel system rocket system for probably a 100 years. Like it will be the best way to do it for a long time until yeah, someone creates a, a fusion rocket, then then maybe we're back to the drawing board and we've got new ways to carry payloads in space. But beyond a fusion rocket, then maybe you've got an antimatter rocket, but antimatter is just incredibly expensive to to create 65 trillion dollars per gram. Uh, so so for now, chemical rockets are are the way and fully reusable, refuelable, relaunchable chemical rockets are going to carry humanity into space. Felipe del Villar, is it possible to scale ion propulsion to reach a fraction of C? Is there a reason we cannot have a nuclear reactor plus a particle accelerator to accelerate a spaceship? The problem with using an ion engine is that still you need a propellant. So you're going to carry only so much propellant on board your spacecraft, and you're going to be firing them out at hundreds of 1000s of meters per second, like the the escape velocity of the propellant is very high. But it still doesn't compare to the speed of light. Even if you had all the matter in the entire universe, you still wouldn't be reaching like 1% of the speed of light. If you had a giant ion engine, you need something else. The only kind of propulsion system that's going to get us close to the speed of light is a propulsion system that is essentially going the speed of light. And so either a laser sail that is bouncing off of some reflective material, the laser is going the speed of light, so you can theoretically reach close to the speed of light, or 
a photon drive where your spacecraft is firing a laser off of itself and the photons are going the speed of light and you can theoretically accelerate up to close to the speed of light. Pretty much there's no other system. Antimatter might do the trick. Antimatter is so energy dense that if you could store enough of it, you could reach relativistic velocities. But beyond antimatter lasers, we're not gonna be able to reach significant speeds. Macpot. Why isn't the Drake equation modified? So it has a parameter, which intelligent species would decide to send out von Neumann probes if they could do so? People have suggested all kinds of changes to the Drake equation. There's only like six parameters in the Drake equation, but you can imagine lots more. What percentage of, of planets have a large moon to help stabilize its orbit? What percentage of planets exist around a main sequence star that doesn't give off a lot of flares? Like you could just, you could add a hundred or a thousand variables to the Drake equation. And the essential problem to the Drake equation remains the same is that we don't know how often life forms on a planet. We only have one example. And so all modifications of the Drake equation just come down to the same problem is that we just don't know how often life forms. And until we do, it doesn't really matter. Paul Holio, how long will Elon Musk's space car last as a recognizable technological object? That's a great question. And I and I don't know the answer. But I know the answer of for something else. Now, of course, Elon Musk launched his shiny red Tesla Roadster into space to test the Falcon Heavy rocket and sent it out on a trajectory that carries it out beyond the asteroid belt. And then it's going to make its way back into the inner solar system and back out and maybe at some point over the next few million years, it'll have some interaction with Earth and maybe crash into the Earth or, or be spun out into a different orbit, who knows what the future holds, you know, it is on an Earth crossing orbit. And so mayhem gravitationally with the Earth is is kind of inevitable at some point. But let's just assume that that it always misses the Earth. Then there was a calculation thought about the Voyager spacecraft. So when Voyager was originally built, they built the gold record. And the gold record was there to if any aliens could find the record that they would get some sense that humanity about humanity's location in the Milky Way, what life forms we had on Earth, the sounds, things like that. And it was designed to last about a billion years before just the wear and tear the radiation, the particles interacting with it would just wear it down to the point that it would be gone. Here in the solar system, it's a denser region than interstellar space. But I think you would still see this blob of technology flying around into the billion plus year range. Your toast. Is there any study or research currently going on a way to find for humans to survive in space long time? Yeah, there is a spaceship called the International Space Station, which has been orbiting overhead for over 20 years, has been continuously inhabited by NASA astronauts, Russian astronauts, as well as astronauts from many other member nations. And really, the purpose of the International Space Station, in addition to performing various experiments, is to learn what happens to the human body in space for long periods of time. Before the International Space Station, you had Mir, the Russian one, and they had fairly long duration space flights, and they had learned quite a bit. But the International Space Station, we've had 
astronauts go longer than a year at a time in space and then return back down to Earth. And they're testing techniques, not just on what it does to the human body, testing out ways to exercise, testing out different kinds of medicine. They're also testing out ways to grow food in space, ways to manufacture things in space. I mean, the International Space Station is a test platform for helping humanity survive long durations in space. There are a bunch of tests that haven't been done yet, like creating artificial gravity. But for almost every other concept you can imagine, experiments are being done on the space station to try to simulate this and figure it out. More questions in a second. But first, I'd like to thank our patrons, S. Minner, James Parker, Chris Krollback, Ryan, the Brett Walda, Bob Hall, and the rest of our 898 patrons for their generous support. Want our videos early with no ads? Join our community at patreon.com slash universe today. Abastine 2000. So if the Voyagers are not in any orbit and they were launched with sun escape velocity, are they slowing down? Yeah, the Voyagers are slowing down as they're getting farther and farther away from the sun. Like imagine the sun or the solar system as a valley. The sun is at the bottom of this valley and to climb up out of the, the sun's gravitational pull, you have to climb up the mountains on this valley. Now the escape velocity from the earth is like 16 and a half kilometers per second. And so the voyagers are going on a velocity that is faster than that escape velocity, the faster than the escape velocity to get away from the sun, but they are slowing down over time because the sun's gravity is still pulling them down. But escape velocity means that at infinite time, they will never fall back into the sun. And they're on their way out into deep space, it's going to take them you know, 50,000 years to reach the nearest star, the distance to the nearest star, but they're never coming back. Hoshis, if the universe is expanding and objects are moving farther away from each other at an increasing rate, how are collisions possible between galaxies? At the largest scale, everything in the universe is spreading away from each other faster and faster and faster. But at various local scales, there are objects that were already closer, and they are gravitationally bound to each other. And a good example of that is Andromeda. So when you look out into space, in all directions, you see galaxies and pretty much every single galaxy that you see is moving away from us. The more distant the galaxy is, the faster it's moving away from us. But the exception is Andromeda, which is about two and a half million kilometers away from the Milky Way. And that distance between the Milky Way and Andromeda is so close that it's the gravity between the Milky Way and Andromeda that is the dominant force that's pulling them together. And you've got Andromeda, you've got the Milky Way, you've got M33 in Triangulum, you've got a few dozen dwarf galaxies that are all collected around the local group of galaxies, they're all bound to each other gravitationally. But once you get any farther away, all the rest of the galaxies out there that we can see, they are all moving away from us faster and faster and faster over time. And so if you sort of go into the far, far future, you can imagine this time when all that we can see in the sky is just the local galaxies around us, we won't see any of the other galaxies because they will have fallen over the cosmic horizon. And if you could go to any one of those other galaxies, you would see the same thing, you would just see the local galaxies around you and nothing else in the sky because everything else had expanded away from you. Bob Hopedorf, which of the active support structures do you think that we should invest in the most into developing near term space towers, launch loops, orbital rings, etc. 
I don't think we really need to develop any of those kinds of alternative launch platforms. If big if Starship is able to function, it's able to provide this fully reusable two stage lift to orbit. Now for a couple of million dollars, you should be able to launch 150 tons into low Earth orbit, 200,000 kilograms right into low Earth orbit. That's a game changer. And it's really hard for any other idea to provide any kind of practical cost efficient launch system compared to a fully reusable two stage rocket. But I do think that that the thing that will help humanity explore space and become more of a spacefaring civilization is more infrastructure in space. So there's a ton of technologies that we need to master such as orbital refueling, orbital power generation and beaming, not to Earth, but beaming from one place in space to another place in space, in situ resource utilization. So go down onto the moon to harvest rocks, water, turn those into resources that that a rocket can use building material, things like that. And so I think the the thing that we need to be able to do next is to build orbital infrastructure. I mean, just think about like, how our society works here, like we have bridges, like imagine how awful it would be to have to drive around every river, right? We have roads, highways, with bridges, so that you can go to any destination that you want within a land area, we have ferry docks ports that can help offload cargo, like we have all this infrastructure that's going all the time. And yet in space, we have none of it. And so building space infrastructure is going to be the next big thing that will carry us permanently into becoming a solar system spanning civilization. Big man 69er, can there be life without a magnetic field? It depends on what you mean by life, I guess. Like here on Earth, we are protected by the Earth's magnetosphere. And that's generated by the dynamo inside the core that's generating this magnetic field. And it is preventing the solar wind, the cosmic radiation from reaching the, the surface of the Earth and irradiating life, wrecking the ozone layer, bathing us all in constant ultraviolet radiation. So the magnetosphere is doing a lot of the heavy lifting to keep large life forms successful on the surface of the Earth. If there was no magnetosphere, would there be no life on Earth, there would still be life on Earth because there's life down at the bottom of the oceans around hydrothermal vents, even a meter of ocean will protect you from all of the radiation coming from space. And so I can imagine, if we didn't have a magnetosphere, we probably wouldn't have a lot of large life forms on the surface. But you can imagine creatures that maybe would be smaller, more resistant to the radiation, being able to hide for long periods of time, going out only when they needed to, it would be different. And so I think that, you know, when we think about other planets out there, the question is, like, if we find a planet that doesn't have a magnetosphere, is that that like, it just, there's no chance there's going to be life there. And I don't think that's true. I think, even if we find a planet that doesn't have a magnetosphere, it could still very well have life on it, just not life exactly as we understand it. But having a magnetosphere being protected from that dangerous space radiation is a bonus, you would want that would be helpful. So that would be preferable, but I don't think it's a deal killer. Obrick, why aren't we using balloons to lift rockets way up before launch? The idea of using a balloon to rock to launch a rocket has been considered and 
there are some companies that are potentially testing this idea. The technical term for a balloon that launches a rocket is called a raccoon. And the idea is that you take a balloon, you put the balloon, you tether the rocket to the balloon, and then you let it fly up. And then when the balloon is reached stratospheric altitude, the rocket detaches from the balloon, fires its rocket and heads off into space. But that helps you with only half of the challenge of getting to space. Getting above the Earth's atmosphere is great, very helpful. And that's why rockets have a nose cone, and they're designed to slice through the atmosphere to reach their altitude. But the main thing that a rocket has to do is to fly sideways very quickly. So a rocket is going 28,000 kilometers per hour when it is in orbital velocity. So the rocket starts at zero, and then has to fire until it's going 28,000 kilometers per hour sideways around the Earth, and it has to reach about, say, 500 kilometers altitude to get up above the Earth. And the 500 kilometers part, that's not very far, you could hop in a car, and you could drive, you could drive straight up, you could reach the edge of space in about an hour, just in a car, the key to a rocket is going sideways. And so even if you could launch a rocket from a balloon, you wouldn't have to carry such a giant rocket, you could potentially launch a bigger payload. But how big of a rocket can you launch from holding on to a balloon? Consider the size of Starship. It's gigantic. Um, that it's kind of finicky, you're like dropping your rocket off the balloon, the rocket's got to orient itself, figure out where it is and then launch. So people are are considering this idea. And who knows, we might see some prototypes and some actual companies that try to fill a certain niche in the launch market, but it's going to be really hard to compete against a fully reusable two stage rocket like Starship. Shiny galaxy, which potentially habitable star system excites you the most? Trappist one and tea garden star are some of the most exciting ones Trappist one in particular really excites me. You hit the nail on the head, the Trappist one system has got to be the most exciting planetary system that's been found to date, you've got six planets, Earth ish sized planets in orbit around a red dwarf star that are ranging from too hot, several planets in the habitable zone to too cold. So you've got both this like planets in the habitable zone, you've got this range, they're Earth sized, it's relatively close, James Webb will be able to image them potentially be able to sample the atmospheres of these planets, and give us one of the best analyses that we have of whether these planets are habitable or not. And maybe even if there's some of the chemicals of life there. It's really exciting. So it's hard to beat that. My guess is the most exciting planet is the one that hasn't been discovered yet. Like what we really want is we want the Earth sized world orbiting around a sun like star within the habitable zone. And so far, no astronomers have even found those yet. You've got tests, you've got the Kepler data, you've got some other spacecraft that are launching in a while you've got Earth based observatories that can detect planets using the radial velocity method. And so over the next couple of decades, well, decade or so, we will probably find that Earth analog, an Earth sized world orbiting around a sun like star. And there will be telescopes capable of attempting to image it, you're going to have the extremely large telescope, which will be able to image this planet, James Webb might be able to do it, although it would be kind of tricky for James Webb. But then there are other telescopes in the future that'll be able to do this as well. And so I mean, <laughs> that's a cop out the the one I'm most excited for is the one that we haven't seen yet. Moonwalker, 
Hey Fraser, if we gather up all the rocks and asteroids in our solar system, how big of an object could it form compared to the size of the Earth? So if you took all of the asteroids in the asteroid belt and you mash it all together, you would end up with an object that's about 5% of the mass of the moon. So that's pretty small. Now, the Trojan regions around Jupiter seem to have about the same number of objects as mass as the rest of the asteroid belt. And so if you took all of those objects and mashed them together, now maybe you'd end up with something that's 10% the mass of the moon. So it would be a reasonable moon around one of the other planets in the solar system, but not very big. Now, obviously, you want to add Kuiper belt objects. Now you're talking now you're adding some mass to it. But still, all the Oort cloud objects. Now this is probably a pretty big object. But people think like, oh, the asteroid belt is just this destroyed planet. If you could just put it all back together again, you'd have a serious object. But you really wouldn't. It's just not a lot of material there. Dr. Brian Keating, what are the odds that the Event Horizon Telescope shows a movie of Sagittarius A star? I like the odds. Someone on Twitter said, you know, if someone gives you a present and there's a there's a tail wagging, you you suspect you probably got a puppy for your birthday present. It is the Event Horizon Telescope. This is the same people that took a picture of the supermassive black hole at the heart of M87. At the same time that they gathered the data for M87, they also gathered all the data for the supermassive black hole at the heart of the Milky Way. It's the Event Horizon Telescope people. It's the Milky Way. What could this exciting discovery be? I'm guessing aliens. I'm guessing they've discovered aliens. Um, I would just be shocked, shocked. The exciting thing would have if they had something to announce that wasn't that they were going to show us a picture of the supermassive black hole at the heart of the Milky Way. You know, a lot of people ask me, like, why didn't they release that picture first? Because it's closer and it should have been easier. And the problem was that the dynamics of the area around the supermassive black hole at the Milky Way, it's smaller, it's a lot quicker. And so the image is changing over time. And so it's been really tricky to untangle the data that they gathered when they did their observing run for Sag A star. My hope is they're done. But we could always be surprised someone suggested that maybe there's like a second black hole that's been discovered in the area. And so that would be interesting. We're just gonna have to wait. But I would just be shocked shocked. If it wasn't. Here's the picture you've all been waiting for. It's been years. Let's see that picture. Johnny G. Instead of sending a probe to Uranus, why don't they use Hubble to view it too dark to view? The Hubble Space Telescope takes a look at at Uranus every year when Uranus is at its closest point. And there's a series of images year after year after year. And the problem is that Hubble's just far away. It's just so far away from from Uranus, and it just can't take a great picture as what you can get sending a spacecraft up close. It does the same thing with Jupiter, even though we have the Juno spacecraft at Jupiter taking just these ludicrously high resolution images of Jupiter, the Hubble Space Telescope takes a picture of Jupiter every year, just for comparison and with Saturn and Mars, every time these these planets are at their closest, Hubble takes a picture and it just won't compare to what it'll be to send a spacecraft. So we need a spacecraft to go to Uranus to probe its gas. Brandon Warren, would it ever happen where two black holes could be on a ballistic collision course that the two collide head on with enough kinetic energy that instead of merging, they destroy each other? Nope. Even if two black holes just crashed into each other directly, and you don't get that gravitational wave chirp as the two black holes spin closer and closer and merge. No, if they just crash into each other, boom, you get a new black hole that contains the mass of the two black holes that collided together 
and now it goes off in search for more meals to feed upon. You can't destroy a black hole. You can't get out of a black hole. They're monsters. All right. Those are all the questions that we had this week. Thank you, everyone, for asking questions in the YouTube comments. For all the people who showed up live for the show here on my YouTube channel at 5 p.m. Pacific time on Mondays. Lots and lots of great questions, lots of follow up. Super fun. I really enjoy this. All right. I will see all of you next week. And don't forget to put in those codes. Put in the codes for the questions that you thought were the best, and we will count them up and celebrate the best questioner next week. Thanks, everyone. If you want a single comprehensive resource for space news, you want to subscribe to my weekly email newsletter. Every Friday, I send out a magazine of space news with dozens of stories, pictures, brief highlights and links you can find out more. Go to universetoday.com newsletter to sign up. It's totally free. And did you know that all of my videos are also available in a handy audio podcast format so that you can have the latest episodes as well as special bonus material like interviews with me show up on your audio device. Go to universetoday.com slash audio or search for Universe Today on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'll put a link in the show notes. Thanks to all the moderators and a special thanks as always to Chad Weber, Nancy Graziano, and Anton Pozikoff. All right, we'll see you next week.